Hey everyone, welcome to episode 106 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Kasser-Apple, Collins is also here. Hey Collins. What's up Chris? And we are joined by special guest Lee McLeod. Hooray! Hey y'all. This episode was actually Lee's idea. Yeah, I pitched it at lunch yesterday. And I immediately like, accepted <laughs> it, because I we don't have any tournaments or anything going on yeah. right now. So. It's a break week. Yeah. Um, so this week, we are going to be sort of a mailbag episode, talking about some strategy questions that have kind of, we didn't quite pick up doing other Patreon questions of the week, but they're interesting questions, so we want to make sure to go kind of in-depth on them. And since it was Lee's idea, I want yeah. Lee to come give his thoughts. Yes, MDG Lee cast confirmed. That, that's, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm stoked about these questions. I, I got to look at, through all the archives and pick out a bunch of them. It was great. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm pretty excited as well. There have definitely been quite a few that I've you know been like, all right, we should at least go back and do yeah. some of these. I, I tried to get so. like the general ones because I didn't want to be like like talking about scapeshifters or whatever. Right. right. Before we get started, want to thank our patrons. Really appreciate everybody who has signed up for the Patreon. Uh, I have envelopes now. I'm, I've started stuffing them with pins and tokens and stuff. We're going to send those out. So, and and to all patrons, old and new, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. We had a, definitely our best month ever, and I think we are continuing to grow. And a lot of that is y'all signing up. A lot of that is also people telling their friends about the podcast, which is also super, super cool. Yeah. Thanks to our newest patrons, Justin G, Louis T, Brian H, Calvin V, and Daniel C. Really appreciate it. Um, and we will see everybody in the Discord. Lee, you want to kick us off with this Keeper Mall hand? I get to do it. Neat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is a uh, Keeper Mall with Urza. I have Mulligan to five on the draw. Uh, and this is the blue-white Urza deck that Alessandro Protero, I believe his name was, played at the Pro Tour to an 8-2 finish. Mm -hmm. Just kind of just copy-pasted his list and started playing it. Uh, it's got it's blue-white, it's got some Karns in it with like kind of a little Karn sideboard. It's got a bunch of Teferis and a couple of Detention Spheres. Mm -hmm. It's a uh, lot of so three and four mana cards. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that no no engineers at all. It's like kind of just straight blue-white. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So this hand has... Two lands, a Flooded Strand, and a Snow-Covered Plains. A Tormod's Crypt, a Mox Opal, a Graft Digger's Cage. A Thopter Foundry, and a War of Invention. So, two lands. One of them, unfortunately, only makes white mana. Yeah. Right. The Opal, a couple of cheap artifacts that are also graveyard hate pieces, and Thopter Foundry and War. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting, this is like a snap keep. You definitely have cards. to keep this, yeah. But you have to put two back. And it's interesting what you want to put back. So it seems like the kind of like awkward parts of this hand are you don't really, in the dark, you probably don't want both of your graveyard artifacts. But at the same time, those are your only cheap artifacts. So you, and you need to turn on your Mox Opal. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, you're like strained in, in, in that direction. There's like two main choke points in this hand, I think. You, you have like a Mox Opal hand that wants artifacts. With a Thopter Foundry. Yeah. But you also have the Thopter Foundry Whirr, so that's the combo right there. Yeah. Right. But you can't cast Whirr because you have a Snow-Covered Plains. Uh, so there's like a couple combinations of cards you can keep, uh, which is unusual. <laughs> we're on the draw. Uh, would it be crazy to put back this Snow-Covered Plains? No. That's, I don't okay. think so. 
Right. Yeah. That's. I mean, it feels weird, but we need as many artifacts as we can get, and we have the Mox Opal. So you know, maybe turning this into a one lander with the Mox Opal is you know where we want to end up being. So then, what's your other putback? It's got to be like one of the graveyard hate artifacts. I mean, you're you're going pretty far from having your Mox Opal turned on, but I, I feel like when you're on five, you got to keep the comp. You really want to keep both War and Thopter Foundry because. I mean, that that's my gut, but because I don't know what this hand is doing if you're not aiming straight to the combo, and I think you're more likely to draw mana than you are to draw sure. more combo pieces. Yeah. I, I could definitely see an argument for putting back the war here, just because it's like it's the pretty awkward. Card. Yeah. But if we're putting back the war, then all of a sudden I like, want to keep this. not very good. I, and I want to keep the, the planes as right. well. Right. So, Lee, thoughts? I, I don't actually know what the right answer is. Okay. Which is what is interesting about this hand. Yeah. But I think this hand just won't beat most things. Mm-hmm. No matter okay. what two cards you put back. Sure. So I think you have the highest chance of trying to beat a graveyard deck. Because obviously you have two graveyard hands in your hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes me want to keep Mox Opal if I want to keep both graveyard cards. And I would rather bottom the Thopter Foundry because it does almost nothing in this hand. And keep the war bottom the Snowcover Plains. Which leaves your five card hand to be... Fledged Trand, War of Invention, and the three artifacts. Gotcha. That way, if you're playing against Hogak, you've got uh, two mana sources, uh, two graveyard hate cards, and you can War for Bridge to probably win the game. Yeah. Uh, if you're playing against anything else, I don't think that the combo is going to win. You just like have to put either mana or artifacts back. Which and are... you really need to draw like an Urza to make that right. really what you need it to be. The Thopter combo scales really, really well with mana. Right, right. But this hand kind of caps at three mana. Yeah. Uh, and you don't really have any way of fixing your draws into being more mana. Right. And and the deck is actually, you know, now, now that I'm thinking of it, you know, because I was thinking about this hand in the context of, like, the version that you handed me to play in the Classic, but this version actually has a lot of clunkier, kind of more expensive cards, and you got to have the mana available to you to, to cast those. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, if, if our deck has a bunch of, you know, Teferis and Detention Spheres, mm-hmm. it makes things a little more awkward, for sure. So. Interesting. Uh, initially, I wanted to kind of bottom the Crypt and the uh, Mox Opal to okay. just kind of draw into lands to sure. play like a combo game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that's like actually very good against much. This Planes is so dead in this hand. That... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the one of Planes. And it's really bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a bummer. Yeah, interesting. What a weird hand. I, I definitely don't really know what's right there. But yeah, I, I mean, you just got to kind of think about, like, what can I beat? What can't I beat? What gives me the best overall odds given that? And you certainly, like, any five-card hand with Cage and Crypt game one against a Hogak deck is, like, heavily favored. Yeah. Well, I think it's mostly Cage and, and Bridge. Right, right, sure. Good. Not, sure. Crypt is... Crypt is really Crypt beating. turns on Moxopol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and especially once you have the Cage, the Crypt is... Right. Yeah. If they if they game one trophy your your cage, you're just probably gonna lose. But <laughs> yeah, I you know I I also don't know exactly what's correct. But man, it would be so much easier if it wasn't in the dark. You yeah, I know just, exactly. You just right. know what to do. Open decklist, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Does if you're make playing mulligan... this at the MC, then we'll know. <laughs> Definitely right? makes those mulligan decisions a lot easier. Holy cow. Yeah. So I wanted to transition for just a minute and talk about a deck basically on the opposite end of the spectrum from this particular deck. True. Yeah. So Collins, you had a pretty strong weekend (laughs) as far as like weekends with no SCG events go. Yeah, it was great. So I played in two IQs this weekend. Yep. Both with Burn. Just pretty much the same 
The same 74 cards that I played in, uh, <laughs> in where were we, Columbus? Yes. But you played a 15th sideboard card. I did. I played a 15th sideboard cool. card. It was Broken. great. Yeah. So for Saturday, I added in a extra Takatli Honor Guard just to kind of fill out my human's plan. Mm-hmm. And in that tournament, uh, well, kind of a funny story about that tournament is that I didn't have enough sun-baked canyons <laughs> in my deck. <laughs> Uh, because we just, like, couldn't, like, nobody had Sunbaked Canyons that I could borrow for that event. So I ended up playing two Sunbaked Canyons and two Fiery Islets. Ugh. So that was, you know, not ideal. Not optimal. But it never came up. It was never relevant. Never (laughs) got punished. And Uh, it definitely makes your opponents confident that you're running, like, six of those (laughs) lands. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, wow, okay, extra. And that might even be right. Who knows? (laughs) Um... But the, you know, the chances of that actually punishing you are super, super small. So mm-hmm. it wasn't really a big deal. And I won the tournament. So, so it was, it worked out. It's all fine in the end. Yeah. Clearly it was correct. Yeah. Uh, the tournament went pretty smoothly. I lost to Dylan on Hogak in the Swiss mm-hmm. and then proceeded to win out and then draw in. And then I beat Zan in the semifinals. Zan was on his Ren and Six Monterey Phoenix deck. Right. Which I've been mm-hmm. playing some. And yep. it is not capable of beating Burn. No. <laughs> Lightning Helix just ends the game. Yeah. yeah. Lightning Helix, Searing Blaze, all these cards are insane two-for-ones, and that deck doesn't really have any access to anything like that. Yeah. And so, but one trend I will note, will point out over the weekend was that Monterey Phoenix and Burn were very heavily represented mm-hmm. and did very well in both of the events. So much so that th- when I was playing in the IQ the next day, I cut all the Tukatli Honor Guards in my sideboard for core Firewalkers yeah. because Monored Phoenix and Burn were just everywhere and I wanted to be prepared for that. Yep. So Makes uh, sense to me. I I have gotten bodied by Dragon's Claw in the mirror because <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I didn't have them and then my opponent did and I could just never, ever win at that point because yep. every spell you cast... Half of like a bunch of which are cantrips that draw you into more red spells, and then your opponent's doing the same thing. There's a lot of red spells cast in those mirrors. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Dragon's Call and Core Firewalker burns worst nightmare, yeah. pretty much always. Yeah. You kind of have to have the Path to Exile for the Firewalker or the Smash for the, the other one if you ever yeah. want to have any hope of winning. Luckily for me, I uh, did not run into many of those. Uh, I saw them everywhere, but I was able to defeat all of my burn opponents, so that was nice. Yeah, so the next IQ, uh, I ended up making top four, losing to a Mardu deck that had the flashback Helix card. Smiting Helix. Smiting Helix. Helix. <laughs> yeah, that it's one two was... Lightning Helixes. You definitely can't beat that. Yeah, no skull cracks in my 75 either. Right. It just wasn't great. Although I will say that I think I threw away game one of that match. I think I could have won. I just... He discarded a Ball Lightning that makes you discard two cards, mm-hmm. the new one, Lightning Scale Elemental. Yeah. And... I, I think I just kind of mentally checked out and lava spiked him twice and got in for three with my Swiss Spear mm-hmm. just to maximize my Swiss Spear damage. Mm-hmm. But I had a Searing Blaze and a Lightning Bolt in my hand. So you never needed to get hit by that. So ball yeah, the, the Ball Lightning just never needed to connect. Mm-hmm. And I just ended up like, you know, <laughs> awkwardly discarding my, you know, Your two answers my, my two answers to it <laughs> just to get in my nine damage the pe- previous turn. Yeah, not not worth. Right. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, Burn felt great. I think it's pretty clear after this weekend that Burn is in a really good position. Mm-hmm. So I feel pretty validated for my choice for Columbus. And, you know, it just continues to be putting up results. Yeah. I I think just, like, playing Fatal Push is pretty bad right now. Yeah. And when people start cutting their Fatal Pushes, then running Goblin Guides ends up being Very pretty nice. great. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And I think that, you know, once the Burn players figured out the best way to answer the Hogak decks, mm-hmm. the Burn players started having a lot more success, just like generally in the tournament. So we are going to go into general strategy questions, but that is sure. one thing that I want to go over right before that is what is your, like, how are you beating Hogak? Are you, is rest in peace part of it or just path to exile or mm-hmm. what is the... What no is rest that? in peace. Okay, yeah. I like it. I think rest in peace is pretty bad against I agree. Hogak. Uh, it's just too slow. And if you're on the draw, then you might as well just concede that game because, mm-hmm. you know, your your like bullet card is just dead to a turn two Hogak, which is the entire point of their deck. Yep. And they're um, so good at it now. Yeah, so. and they're going to be able to have a turn two Hogak. Like, you know, in London Mulligan, it, it's just going to happen. Yep. So I don't want my bullets to be dead to that, so mm-hmm. I ended up playing Tormut's Crypt instead. Okay. And I was just willing to really aggressively pop the Tormod's Crypt on... Yeah, like a just one, one Stitcher Supplier trigger Three cards, even. Yeah, like, yeah. if they're, like, you know, casting another thing that, like, potentially could allow them to either hit a Hogak or mm-hmm. cast one from their hand, I'll just pop it. Yep. Um, and that's all you really need, because, you know, it's not... There's no mana investment. You get to continually be proactive and, you know, burning your opponent. You <laughs> so, get one prowess trigger off yeah, of it. Yeah, you're right. just kind of cycling it. You, like, delay them a turn to draw yeah. another card that replaces the Crypt. And, right, uh, yeah. And then the other card that's really great in that matchup is just Path to Exile. Mm -hmm. Like, Hogak is the big payoff for their deck, right? Mm -hmm. And you just path it. (laughs) You don't really even need to, like, worry about all their graveyard shenanigans. Like, you know, multiple Venge Vines is definitely annoying. Right. And they probably already fetched their Swamp because they're Burn. Because you're Burn. Yeah. So Path is just great. Yeah, just path it. Yeah, so that was really nice. And then also the Deflecting Palms were... Fun. So that that does work. Like the carry and feeder plan is not quite. You, you, I mean, you have to be pretty conscious about it. Yeah. You, you know, if they play a carry and feeder early, you're pretty incentivized to get it off the board before it can get out of control. Mm-hmm. But it actually did come up against my match against Dylan, where I wasn't able to get rid of his carry and feeder, and he like was actively playing around deflecting palm the whole time. Yep. So he was able to get me there. But uh, I do think it's generally good in the matchup. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. For sure. Well, then, shall we transition to these more sort of level-up questions, general strategy questions, kind of like magic philosophy-oriented oh, yeah. stuff? Sure. I'm excited. So this is a lot of questions asked in our Discord, curated a little bit by Lee, and then we added some more to it. Lee, you want to kick us off with this first one? or? Oh, yeah, sure. All right. This one is by Defjad. says, I have been predominantly a mid-range player, and I'm trying to increase the range of decks I'm comfortable with in an effort to be a more rounded player overall. Uh, Any advice outside of playing a variety of decks and attempting to become proficient with them all? I think the level one answer has already kind of been answered by the question of like, yeah, you you know, if you want to expand your range, it's just in your best interest to just play the other decks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that'll get you, you know, reps and stuff. And that's like generally what you can do to, to do that. Going a little deeper than that, I think one thing that you could do is if you know your tendencies and you have friends who have different tendencies and you're interested in trying to expand your range and might be interested in picking up something that maybe your friend is like much more proficient in, talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. Hear them out, like maybe play some matches with them looking over their shoulder or whatever think through in your mind what you would do in particular scenarios and then if they ever do something different than that when they're playing you like ask them why um ask them their thought process behind certain stuff mm-hmm. um i think that would be you know if you if you have access to that then that's probably your best bet for you know trying to break some of your like 
preconceived biases Mm -hmm. because you know everybody has those like biases and i think that like our combinations of biases make up what decks we like playing most like i'm a very aggressive player so i like playing mono red and standard and burn and modern and stuff (laughs) like that you know but other players have like the opposite tendencies so they maybe like like to play control or whatever so like if i'm watching like a control player play and they like you know take a more conservative line that i wouldn't have taken those are the moments that you really want to focus on and talk about and be like hey i would have done this thing here why did you do this other thing and you know they might tell you oh well okay you just like don't need to or whatever and that kind of conversation i think would be the best thing to look for and definitely like play the deck on your own as well Mm -hmm. because that like helps you understand which questions to ask um i definitely you know i'm probably going to be playing legacy in richmond and so i'm playing some matches on my own so i can run into spots where i'm like i have no idea what to do and then just like do my best and then you know i'll also just be playing downstairs in our little like computer lab room when there's five (laughs) people around and then i can get the consensus on it too and having the combination is good i really like this question too because i identified with it a lot because i I've always been a player who plays like a specific style of deck, like the weird ones, the combo style decks. Uh, I never really got into aggro decks. I I took the the level one advice for this one sure. a, a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> it didn't stick because I still you don't know, like playing what I like. But uh, I just decided I wanted to learn how to play creature decks because I just never played them. Yeah. Like mid range decks, I was fine with aggro decks, like smaller with tighter margins. I just couldn't get. So I just tried to play a bunch of moto with it, a bunch of magic online with it. At first, you know, I just like play my land, play my creature, attack every turn, and that just is not very good. <laughs> right, <laughs> which you yeah. know may surprise you, but I didn't know that. Uh, well, yeah. wrath of God, this card has never been good against me before. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't understand. But I kept losing, and I'm like, oh, this is probably not how you're supposed to play this. And I just tried to really analyze what I was doing mm-hmm. and why. You know, I had all these. I'd played control before, but I never played creature decks. So I was like, well, maybe I need to value my cards more like cards instead of outputs of damage. Yeah. And that, that really helped me. I liked, I, I just kind of branched out more and it was mm-hmm. valuable because yeah. I learned what other people were doing across from me. Yeah, yeah. And no, I would also sure. say the goal of becoming proficient with a range of decks, I would definitely encourage you to break that down a little bit more. You can't sit down and become good at graveyard decks and big mana decks and combo decks and aggro decks when you're used to playing mid-range decks but what you can do is say i would like to learn how to play tron and you can sit down and you can play tron and once you've got like focus on it because it's i think it's pretty hard to learn multiple decks at the same time and then once you feel like okay like this is a deck that i can take to a tournament maybe actually take it to a few tournaments first but then then you can move to the next thing, the next box you want to check off. But yeah. I, I would definitely say focus rather than say, I want to be proficient at everything. Mm-hmm. If you're proficient at mid-range decks and then you become proficient at Tron, you've like doubled your types of decks that you can take to <laughs> right, a tournament. Right. Yeah. And that's that's definitely going to be much more effective than like, you know, playing a league with Tron and then playing a league with Burn and then playing a league with Blue-White Control. You know, it's... Yeah. It's too much to focus on. Yeah. You, you never have time to actually learn yeah. what's going wrong or right. right. Yeah. So this next one is from MCOentuff. 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 Yeah. Um, what's a good way to build a sideboard with Karn the Great Creator? How many is too many or too few cards to wish for? I've found taking the bad cards out of the main deck is a lot trickier when you want to keep the wish cards in the sideboard. I I like this question a lot because it's 
that's like the hidden cost of card. You you have to dedicate some portion of your sideboard to it. And this is why it's so good in Eldrazi Tron, because the, exactly. the sideboard was such garbage. Like, before Karn got printed in Eldrazi Tron, you had four Leyline of the Voids, and, like, some Dismember, and, like, ten cards that were very, you very were marginal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, I well, guess I'll play some Ratchet Bombs. And so <laughs> these, these Warping Wheels will really do the trick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Karn just slots in that deck, you just make your deck all bullet, or your sideboard all bullet artifacts and a lattice, and yeah. Karn's great. Right. But... It's way trickier when you just have colors in your deck. You have an actual sideboard. So this is a weird thing for me to say, but <laughs> spells are actually much better than artifacts on a sideboard. Yeah. <laughs> they just do more things. It's Yeah, that's just true. <laughs> There's definitely a lot to answering this question. I mean, I think that there are... You need to... You have, like, your minimum number of, like, just good bullets that we all know you're going to want to find with Karn. Mm-hmm. Your lattice is pretty much a lock. Piece of graveyard hate. Piece of graveyard hate. Uh, Instaring bridge. I think that Trinisphere out of Tron. I think is a good one. But you know, once you start trying to reach for more cards, you have to really think about like what your deck specifically needs mm-hmm. Karn to be able to find. Think about like the scenarios that you think that you're going to be in in particular matchups and the cards that like solve that scenario. That's kind of how I would go for it like moving forward and then just kind of looking up what other people have done for you know additional ideas you know never hurts (laughs) you know sometimes other people think about cards that you didn't think about or didn't know even existed so i think probably the first like four-ish cards cover about 80 percent of your card minuses yeah and then after that they start dropping off like pretty fast yeah so once you've gotten those like basic bases covered then you have to start thinking really hard about whether or not it's worth it to put that card in your board and i I think that's a big reason why the card the great creator versions of regular old green tron suffered a lot compared to just the here's my card my card liberated card liberated worm coil engine tron deck from a year ago right i mean it's helped by worm coil engine just being the stone nuts in modern right now yeah (laughs) but uh also just the sideboard cards in tron are really important like when i was playing tron i always had four nature's claims in the sideboard and i thought anybody who had three was just a psychopath (laughs) and you got to play ley line that's another three to four cards yeah now that you have to play all this extra graveyard hate in your sideboard you just don't have room there's no room yeah you can't just like slot a trenosphere in every deck or every deck with karn and the good news is right now there aren't really a lot of like blood moon effects running around true so it's kind of less necessary but and i actually have a little different philosophy on karn sideboards are you talking about Starting with Karn, seeing what you can do to fill out your like Karn wishboard. Sure. Uh, I've actually recently gone the other way. Uh, I start with a sideboard I like mm-hmm. without any artifacts, except for Lattice, because that's okay. kind of like the lock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of figure out what effects you have in your sideboard and what artifacts you can use to replace them. Oh, so like, okay. Uh, I was building an Urza deck, and I had two rejections in my sideboard, and I'm like, I want to play a Karn. I'm going to take out one of those rejections for a Damping Sphere. Okay. Because it's good against Tron. It's not good against Eldrazi Tron. But it's we're, we're making some allowances for Karn. It's still good. I have access to it in the main deck. Stuff like that, where you just kind of replace effects with similar mm-hmm. effects. And there aren't as many artifacts that do that as there are real cards. Sure. Uh, but then but I guess the follow-up question is, and you can probably anticipate what I'm going to ask here, is when you're sideboarding, how do you think about whether or not you're bringing in that Damping Sphere as opposed to leaving it in the board for Karn to get. 
I almost always, if the card is good in the matchup, mm-hmm. depending on how many, what my deck is, right? There's a lot of different card decks. Yeah. But most of the time, if the card is good in the matchup, I will board it in my deck mm-hmm. and not try to play a card, minus the card, get the card in my hand, play the card. Mm-hmm. That just takes too long, especially if it's a two-mana card like Damning right. Sphere. You just want to draw it and play it as soon as you can. Yeah. I, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. The only, like, kind of exception to that is Tormod's Crypt, I think, just because it turns your card into a do-a-thing here. But Yeah, sure. But maybe because, like, Hogak is so fast, you would just rather have, have Tormod's Crypt in your hand. turn four Tormod's Crypt to just not do anything. A large majority of the time, I don't even include it in my card for five sideboards. Okay, fair. Now, if the graveyard threat deck were dredge more than hogak and you think that would change yeah sure then then you have time because you know your first graveyard hate card is good against them Mm -hmm. and then the second one is really good against them right (laughs) you stop them from getting seven power on the board early and then you stop them from doing anything for the rest of the game right you you, they can like if you have a crypt they can they can't burn you out of creeping chill which is a lot of after you get past the first wave right usually how they try to close Moving on to the next question. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, Panama Kid asks, there are various effects I'm supposed to do on an opponent's upkeep rather than on my turn af- or after they draw. Generally speaking, what are those and why should I do them on upkeep? When are you supposed to act in your opponent's upkeep versus their draw step versus on your turn? I think it's the, yeah, you know, the crux. The crux of the question. I think and the, the general rule for acting on your opponent's upkeep is... They have mana up on my turn to do the thing I'm scared of them doing. Yeah. Let me make them use that mana on their turn. Yeah. And that's 99% of the time the reason that you're acting in their upkeep, I think. Yeah, the, right, mana is the the general answer to the question, is that, you know, you're, you're acting in these different points all because they have different implications on your opponent's access to mana. You want to act, you want to act on your, your own turn when your opponent is tapped out and has no access to mana, if you expect them to be able to respond in some way if they were untapped. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if they if you think that your opponent might have a counter spell and you don't want your spell to get countered, you should act on your turn. But if they have mana up and you think they have a counter spell, then it's better to move into their upkeep so that when you do cast your spell, if they do have the counter spell, you waste their turn's worth of mana. Mm-hmm. So it's just more awkward for them. So they, you know, it's just about their mana efficiency. So why would you do it during their upkeep instead of after they draw it during their main phase or their instant? Well, yeah, and the the draw step question is generally going to be much more intricate. You, you want to do things in your opponent's draw step if... Well, the, the reason by default we're doing them in the upkeep is we don't want to give them an extra look at a card if they didn't have the counter spell. Right. Yeah. Yes. So that's that's why specifically during the upkeep. Yeah. But draw there step are... is when you want them to have that extra card in their hand before you do your thing. Yeah, exactly. And some some of those scenarios are kind of strange. Like sometimes you want to path to exile or ghost quarter or like anything that allows your opponent to search for a land. Sometimes you want to do those in their draw step because you want to give them an extra chance to draw a land. Mm-hmm. Um, surgical extraction, same thing. Yeah. yeah, surgical extraction, like, okay, you you would rather them draw an extra copy of whatever you're surgicaling, so you want to do it in their draw step to give you that, like, extra shot. But I believe a lot of time, depending on what you're playing against and what instance they could have, you're, you may a lot of the time be better off surgicaling or pathing on your turn because giving them an opportunity to interact with your surgical or path to exile instead yeah. of actually doing the thing if right. the thing is important for the very small chance that they draw the card. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if there's any chance they can interact with it on their turn and they can't interact with it right now, 
I pretty much heavily default to doing it right now. For sure. Right. Yeah. But, you know, the, that's just what makes magic interesting is that you have to weigh like all the factors yeah. of like, okay, what about me doing this now versus later is beneficial? What about it is detrimental? Sometimes you have to like count the number of cards that you expect your opponent to have access to. Like, it's like, okay, they have like three cards that would punish me for doing it now, but like six cards that make it really good for me to do it later. Have they had the opportunity to play one <laughs> right. of these three cards? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely never quite clear cut. So, those are the main, magic's great. Main considerations, yeah. though, I think. Yeah. I think we've hit most of them. Yeah. The mana gate is the most important. Like, you can, if you start doing something, you're going to upkeep and mm -hmm. they have mana or triggers or whatever, you yeah. can go to their draw step and do it then because they, they lose the mana. Yep. And, and one thing to think about as well is like doing stuff in their upkeep that you could do on their end of turn can possibly be better because especially in like low resource games because they don't know what they're going to draw and what will be worth doing on their turn. Yeah. And kind of a maybe side note on this, but I, I know a lot of people, uh, especially less experienced people, they're taught to, you know, do stuff during your opponent's in step. Yeah. Uh, right before your turn because you get to do it and then you untap. Even if they interact with you, they tap out. Uh, but you have to be careful about that sometimes because your opponent can also do things during their end step after you've tapped your mana. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done a lot of, uh, in old standard, used to Glimmer for genius during your opponent's turn and then they could you know, play Gear Hulk and Glimmer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or in current standard, the opponent could play a Merfolk Trickster or activate Spectral Sailor and then your opponent casts an Nexus Fate. This didn't work out at all. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. And one small thing that I'm sure none of our listeners ever do, but there are effects that there's no reason to do them on your opponent's end step, but we kind of think because like, I want to do this thing. Now it's my opponent's end step. I should uh, do it. If you the are... Free cards. The free cards. Free cards. Yeah. Exactly. So free spells or using a wasteland or if you're paying for this spell by sacrificing treasures or something like that, just chill. Draw your card first. Like... Yeah. I've seen way more in-step Tormund scripts than I would care to admit, oh. <laughs> which is a free card with a free activation. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so maybe that helps a couple of people. Just think about yeah. it. Um, yeah, just, you know, be conscious about just, you know, I think being conscious about the mana is uh, going to help a lot of people figure out, um, you know, when you would want to do certain things. The most relevant piece of game state information at almost all moments is how much mana you have access to and how much mana your opponent has access to. Yeah. And a lot of plays are determined by that. Yeah. Yep. It's my turn. Next question. Yeah. You're up, Lee. All right. Oh yeah. You have to read the one that blows our heads right up. <laughs> this is from coach as players who are towards the top end of magic skill level. What do you do on a regular basis to help make little gains in your play outside of the deck building process? such as in-game, in-match decision-making, line reading, etc. The thing that you got to realize is that even though we are probably in the top couple of percent of Magic players, we still have a lot of things to learn about how to play in the game always. <laughs> like every time I play a match with like a deck for the first time or even with decks that I've played for years and you know I still run into things all the time that I'm like wow this was like a cool learning moment so getting in the reps and like playing a lot with whatever we're practicing with for whatever tournament we're preparing for moving forward we're definitely not immune to just like those repetitions 
helping us learn new things. And I think a lot of people overestimate the the air quotes little gains from sure. things outside of gameplay because I'd say gameplay is probably ninety eight percent of what actually is going to help you win matches. Sure, deck building is a good part of it, uh, but. A lot of people don't need to build their own decks. There's so many resources out there to mm -hmm. just grab a deck list that'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not perfect or the best tuned deck, uh, if you play well enough, you can just not make up for it, per se, but yeah, make up for it. Sure. If you take Dom's Tron deck that he won the last Open with to a modern tournament, if you take that 75 to a modern tournament this week, it will be fine. Like, you don't have to make any changes to it, and it will be within a couple of percent of the best Tron deck you could possibly have put together for the weekend. Yeah. The biggest gains that you're going to make is by sequencing everything correctly and understanding what your opponent can do to you and playing your games the best you possibly can. You know, this is a place, this is certainly the place where I have the most room to improve. And, you know, any both of you guys have watched me play, and, you know, I definitely have a lot of mistakes and stuff and we're all making honestly, a lot of mistakes all the time everyone <laughs> yeah. does yeah it's yeah. certainly everyone does uh it's just something that i like keep noticing in myself and and i mean like i'm glad that i notice it because if i just didn't realize i wasn't that i was making mistakes it'd be a lot worse that's how you know you're improving you start noticing your play and you're like oh i'm making mistakes yeah you're like oh yeah yep and if you're not noticing that you're making mistakes get your friend who's better than you to watch your matches or even if they're not or even if they're not better it's it's much easier to notice mistakes when you're not the one who has to handle the cards yeah there's a lot of things you're focused on in a match not even related to the game itself like mm -hmm. how you're sitting make sure your opponents don't see your cards things like that you don't even like consciously think about but you're using mental energy on yeah if i'm watching you over your shoulder mm -hmm. i don't think about anything but yeah. like literally the cards in your hand and the board state yeah that's this is the only reason why when i'm watching the pro tour i'm like that's a bad play. And then I'm right, but yeah. like I didn't have to do any of the stuff that they're doing, including like playing a pro tour match under the camera. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. For sure. To answer like, you know, I feel like we we kind of answered this question a little sideways of just yeah, like, sure. oh, you know, we still need to play a lot and stuff. I you know, I think the the biggest piece of advice that I could give out for like how to make sure that you are getting the most out of your play style mm -hmm. is uh, or most of your, your practice is be pretty conscious about trying to remember uh, how the games play out so that the next time you play a similar matchup, you kind of have that log of these games have played out these ways in the past. And that helps you build like pattern recognition mm. so that you can help develop better game plans. So if you're playing matchups and you know, you say you've played like three or four matches against a particular deck with whatever you're practicing with, be conscious about like remembering like the ways that the games have played out and like the play patterns and stuff like that. Don't just like, you know, play it turn by turn. Because I think, you know, a big mistake that a lot of people run into is they'll like play a match, but when they're playing the match, they're just focused on making the right decision on each particular turn. Mm -hmm. If you can... I mean, that's going to be important because magic's so hard that you really have to put a lot of energy into each particular turn for sure. But if you can kind of get to the next level of being like, okay, I got punished this game because I played in this way so that maybe I like didn't play around days the whole match when I could have afforded to. Mm -hmm. Or like maybe I you know needed to save this removal spell 
for like this other bigger threat that I wasn't considering stuff like that that can do a lot to help you like build that pattern recognition right how, how do I lose this matchup how do I win this matchup yeah and then start thinking about that from turn well from your mulligan decision yeah, yeah the, sure. the way I like to think of it is that you know you played a matchup a few times to get an understanding of it uh, is how do I need each of my turns to look in order to you know get ahead or mm-hmm. win the game not just each turn individually but my string of turns yeah what have you yeah what is the goal what is the goal for this turn as part of my overarching game plan right like am i i'm digging for a threat right now because i need to put my opponent's life total under pressure because they are playing ad nauseum and if they cast that in two turns i would really like for them to have six less life like what is what is the point of the things that you're doing right yeah, and just like thinking about how your cards are going to end up trading for your opponent's cards. Like, you know, this game fundamentally is a big like resource trade game and you want to make sure that the way that your cards interact with your opponent's cards are beneficial for you mm-hmm. and not for them. Um, a pretty fun like level one example of that that I ran into earlier today was my opponent had a blue elemental blast in their hand that I knew about and I had a red elemental blast in my hand <laughs> okay. that they didn't know about. But it would be worse for me if my red elemental blast got countered by their blue elemental blast than if the other way around happened. Mm -hmm. So it was my job to make sure I set up a scenario where I could counter my opponent's card instead of them countering my card. And that on some level doesn't make quite as much sense because the cards are trading for each other no matter what. Mm -hmm. But it's more like the tempo loss of I wanted to set up a point where I could resolve my Renin Six through yeah. their card, right? So, and I, you know, I, I want my card to prevent them from doing something. So setting yeah. up that scenario was, like, important for me. Right. It, it is, they're trading for each other. Yeah. But if it is them putting a true name nemesis on the stack, and then you trade your cards, then there's a true name nemesis in play. Right. That's a lot worse than if it's your threat that goes on there first. Right. And so, yeah, that means, like, you're much more inclined to jam a threat in that spot than to like wait things out a little bit. Right. So those are kind of like the really subtle ways that you should be thinking about. And like, and you know, I knew about their card from like a double flip. I can't remember exactly. Sure. Mm-hmm. But, but you can still make that kind of decision based on what you expect your opponent might have. Mm-hmm. I have another thing to touch on this question, actually. Great. <laughs> right. uh, anything to make little gains in play. Also, to complete, take a t- completely different line here is. Just like mechanical play, if you're playing in paper, just having kind of your process and not being able to stumble over your cards, remembering all your triggers, making reminders for yourself, making the board clear, I think is all really, really helpful for me, particularly. I've spent a lot of time on that. Uh, just to make sure you don't make stupid mistakes. It's really easy to make stupid mistakes in Magic. Yeah. So easy, I would even just not call them stupid mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, they, they make you feel they're stupid. Un- oh, they're... they're <laughs> I think probably best to call them like unforced errors. Like it's yes. nothing that your opponent did. It's just because I mean, I, I don't have a specific reason for it. Maybe you just haven't played, you know, enough cantrip artifacts to be used to drawing the card every time you cast a cantrip artifact or whatever. Right. Maybe you just it's need to you, play the deck more or, or whatever. It's like when you miss a Mistress Bottle trigger because you do like three things during your turn. You you don't write it down or whatever. Yeah. Or you forget you've activated a planeswalker or played a land mm-hmm. in a long turn and then you're you forget you count on that land drop or the planeswalker activation then you go to do it your opponent says you've already done that like oh no 
your turn is just a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> it's just make reminders. It, I've done it a lot, especially when I was playing KCI. There's so many triggers and stuff in that deck that are all invisible. Uh, just try your best to, you know, not make those unforced errors. Yep. I like unforced errors. Yeah. I'm going to use that more now. <laughs> it's just such a nicer way of talking about it. Yeah. Because, you know, it, when you hear that you've made a mistake, it's so, like, soul-crushing. Yeah. But it's like, oh, you made an unforced error. Okay. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll figure out what we can do to not do that in the future and <laughs> right, right. move on. Yes. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> so next one. Oh, yeah. And also, well, never mind. I was just going to make another comment about calling us towards the top end of magic skill level. and oh. <laughs> No, we're just going to take, take, a little we're just gonna that. take that compliment yeah. in stride. Yeah. I'm not going to address it. All right. Jack Lionheart asks... Is your in-game thinking process any different when playing primarily to learn, e.g. playtesting, versus playing primarily to win, e.g. tourneys? The main thing is I'm willing to keep hands that I don't necessarily understand what the plan is for the hand, just to see how they play out more than anything else. And if I yeah. can like come to a plan a turn or two in that I didn't like think of before. Right. But as far as the actual gameplay goes, like I'm usually just like playing as hard as I can either way. I think that I am more willing to like try crazy lines mm -hmm. yes. in playtesting. Like if I'm if I'm like doing something and I'm like, hey if I do this right now, I'm not really sure how this is all gonna end up. Mm -hmm. Let's try it. I think that would be like one of the differences in me like playtesting versus me playing a tournament. But in terms of like the way that I'm parsing and processing all the information, it's it's pretty much the same. And I think that ideally it's the same for everybody because if you, you know, if you are thinking about magic in a certain way, you don't want to have to change the way that you think about magic yep. in when you're performing versus when you're practicing. And then one other question there is if those unforced errors are made in playtesting, yep. what do you do about them? Do you just, no, you draw, you draw your card, we got to play this game right. Or at a certain point, is it like, you got to stop doing this, so I'm not going to let you get away with these so that it, like, because I care about my playtesting partner's tournament success as well, and I don't want them missing <laughs> triggers or whatever in an actual tournament. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think that it just kind of comes down to what you want to get out of your playtesting. Mm -hmm. Are you, is your playtesting meant to give you a like a sample size for a particular matchup so you want to know who should have won in this matchup so you have a good idea of like which deck is favored mm -hmm. you should probably go back and do the correct play yeah but if you're playing to get experience with the deck and to learn you know how everything works it's likely better that you you know suffer the consequence of your mistake mm -hmm. for your match because um, you'll just be more likely to remember that next time yeah, yeah. and i am I'm firmly on the more risky side, just kind of in playtesting. Uh, just kind of see how different scenarios play out that you might not come across all the time in tournaments because they're not very common. Mm -hmm. Then it goes one way and you're like, oh, wow, I would not have expected that. Whereas in tournament, you just do the thing you, you think is going to work. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting. I actually had a, during Collins's top eight at the IQ in Durham, uh, I was letting Jeremy play my Urza deck that I was playing at that tournament, the blue-white one. Nice. Uh, against some other person playing uh, just a control deck. But it was Jeremy, and then on one side it was me, and the other side it was Zan. 
And we each have, me and Zan apparently have different teaching philosophies for Jeremy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Zan wanted to tell Jeremy what to do so that he would learn what to do. And I wanted Jeremy to do whatever he wanted to do so he could learn why it was right or wrong. Sure. And I don't know which is right there. I like my method more because I think you just learn more if you play four cards wrong and you're like, oh, I can see why this is wrong. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you play two cards right, you're like, this is going according to plan. Yeah. Yeah. So when I'm coaching, I generally have my, whoever I'm teaching, like talk through what they would do in a scenario before we actually make the play. And then I'll give my take on whether or not I think that's correct or not. And then we can talk about like why and uh, like the factors of play that maybe made them believe that their play was correct versus why I believe my correct play is better or something Mm -hmm. like that. But that's like a pretty like detail-oriented, very long process that it's... it's you time tough. out a lot. It's tough. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> time yeah. out a lot. Yeah. And I have to tell people, it's okay if we time out. What's more important is that we're like talking about everything and learning and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's harder if, you know, people are just kind of jamming and you can't... If you like, you have an opponent, you can't like... Sitting across from me, you can't talk through all the lines and yeah. stuff. Actually, some of my <laughs> some of my favorite like in-tournament games are where I get to play the like Goldfishy KCI or Nexus decks. Mm-hmm. I get to like stop the tournament stop the game not the tournament stop the game and be like stop this tournament this is my hand just reveal my hand yeah yeah these are my permanents explain my opponent what i'm gonna do yeah like all the combo things before i do it <laughs> like okay they'll pause i'll be like okay now i'm gonna do that right <laughs> they're like okay i got it i'm gonna scoop up my cards now i'm so glad that kci isn't legal in modern anymore <laughs> I don't know, man. Hogak could use a deck that yeah. beats up on it pretty good. That's true. <laughs> but at least Hogak is just there. Like, you put yeah. your power into play. Like, it's very parsable. The match parsable. would probably be pretty close and, like, pretty would, played around yeah. 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 Force of Vigor, too? Oof. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. hard. Force of, Force of Vigor is a gnarly one. Yeah. But yeah, I've forgotten what question we were answering. Um, the uh, one about playing to win and playing to play test. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're good on that one. Yeah. Nice. Ooh, the next question is, it's from Lee. <laughs> is it my turn to read this? I think it's Chris's. Uh, I think I read the last I'm one. I'm not reading my own question. I That's think it's just debate. <laughs> All right. Lee asks, <laughs> uh, Lee asks, what do you look for in a teammate? Honestly, for me, it's just somebody who I trust and believe that I can get along with. That's just number one for me. And, you know, Lee and I have teamed before and we're about to team again. And he definitely fits that bill for me, so... Yeah, I, I think that's like the most important thing is that you got to be able to just like have good chemistry with the people that you're you're teaming with. Yeah, I think, you know, there there's like really two approaches to this. And one is like, I want the best players possible on my team to give me the highest win percentage right. chance. That probably actually doesn't give you the highest win percentage chance because they're like really it's even if you are never consulting with each other on anything, there's still like a team element to it and yeah. being cool with the people around you and knowing like i'm gonna take this line it's risky but i believe it's correct and if it doesn't work out i know nobody's gonna be mad at me because they trust me on this yeah like that is really key to allowing you to make that correct decision yeah and i i just think it's really important to play the tournament with people that you get along with and i like if i was just at a tournament with two stone cold killers then I'd just be like, man, I'm really going to be like so worried about like dragging them down because I know that they're there for to max their points. And yeah. Yeah. 
uh, that would put a, an amount of pressure on me. And while I do go to tournaments to win the tournament, and I want to have as much, I want to win as many matches as I possibly can. I also go to play magic and hang out with my friends and enjoy it. And that's an important part of me winning too, because if I'm feeling good, I'm much more likely to win my matches. Yeah. Yeah. To me, attitude is like the main, the main thing Mm -hmm. I want, you know, basically kind of what Collins was saying. The the whole trust is really important. I don't want someone to not, I've had teams where not me personally, but I've watched teams where there's this dynamic where one player uh, is expected to kind of like talk the other players through things uh, because they don't trust them to make the correct play. Yeah. And I, I don't want to be a team where there's any player like that, even if it's not me, even if I'm not, I'm the one doing it or the one being advised. Sure. I, I just think that demonstrates kind of not a team dynamic that's very healthy. Yeah. And that also probably comes from like another thing is it's really good to team with people that are of similar skill levels across the board, just like keeping expectations. And and I'm not saying like there are players that are that shouldn't team with other players because these players are so much worse than them or something like that. But it is really frustrating to look across at your teammate and see them making a play that just is very wrong on its face and you would never have made in a million years. And it's very frustrating to make a play that you think is okay and then look over and see your teammate like, what the hell did you just do? <laughs> sure. So I think yeah. we, we, me and you actually had one of those moments, right? Where we were on a team in one of the Ohio cities, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I just completely punted. Yeah. And I, I saw the play that was supposed to be made. I saw the play that was supposed to be made right. too. <laughs> and I, there was no doubt in my mind Chris would make this play. I did not say anything. I knew he would do it. Well, because I was going to do it up until the second that I didn't do it. <laughs> then he didn't do it. And I'm like, yeah. well, that happens. And we're not going to say anything about it. I know he would do it the correct thing the next time this comes up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, nobody's immune to those unforced errors. Unforced right. errors. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I just could, did not get punished at all. Followed it up with the correct play that allowed me to draw the card to win the game. <laughs> Drew the card to win the game. Got him. Got him. Whew. I would have felt really bad if I had lost that one because of that. Yeah, that was not great. That's okay. <laughs> it happens. This is from Proggy Boog. What's your magic goal? What are you currently striving for? Currently, I'm trying to make the Players' Championship. Mm-hmm. I think that is sums up my current magic goal but uh in the past i've been pretty vocally against setting goals that are results oriented typically i like my goals to be more process oriented like you know i want to like hit this level of preparation for particular events or whatever but right now there's like a very real objective oriented thing that i'm shooting for so yeah i mean my goal is to to make it to the player's championship i'm you know I'm a little behind where I would like to be for that right now, but, you know, I'm still going to shoot for it, so. I am, as far as, like, getting stuff accomplished would go, I would like to finish up this year in top 64 yearly because that would get me a buy for all of next year, and that would be nice. If I don't hit that, I'm not going to be too broken up about it. I am going to give myself the best chance that I can, and I am going to attempt to go to every Open for the rest of the year to give myself that chance and so that's like my process here is i'm going to go to all of these opens um the other process thing that i'm going to do is i between work and you know working on the podcast and that sort of thing uh, i my time becomes pretty constrained 
but I want to make sure that I am focusing my magic time as much as possible as I can towards what I need to be working on at any given point. So, for example, now I know that I'm playing Legacy. I'm going to, in Richmond, I'm going to play in the Legacy Classic if we don't day two. And so I'm going to focus on Legacy and play exclusively that for the next, you know, week and a half. And I would like to maintain going forward a minimum of playing like a league's worth of Magic, you know, five days out of the week is what, you know, I would like to be hitting that. That's not a ton. That's not as much as I would be playing in an ideal world, certainly. But if I set that as a minimum, that usually helps me play more than that. And then it's much easier to play a second league in a day if you've actually sat down and played the first one. And so I I need to... And my my biggest... You know, we already talked about how getting those reps in and cleaning up your play and stuff is pretty much everybody's best route to gaining percentage points in matches uh and certainly because i have access to team lotus box decks and stuff like that my my main thing that i need to do i don't even need to that testing doesn't even necessarily need to be me figuring out exactly the right configuration of 75 cards for a tournament that just needs to be me playing the type of deck that i'm going to be playing in the tournament getting as good at that type of deck as i possibly can and understanding all of the decks that I will play against, and then the actual card choices can get hashed out with people who have spent more time actually working on the list, and so I can divide the labor up a little bit and focus my attention on the thing that I need to work on the most out of me. So that's that's my goal, is to be consistent in playing the format that I need to be playing to prep for the next tournament and be getting in enough reps that I show up to the tournament and you know, minimize my own forced errors at least, but mm-hmm. certainly not eliminate them. I'm glad y'all went first because I had to think. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure, honestly. I, for the longest time, uh, my magic goals has just been to improve. Just try to play a little better every time, make fewer errors, learn from the mistakes I make, that, that sort of thing. That's just That's just been my goals for a very long time now. Recently, I... And this sounds a little big, I know, but I would really like to actually have some success in a tournament, uh, in an Open. I've never top in an Open. The gap between your abilities and your success is probably broader than any other Magic player that I know. Just because you haven't, you know, somebody who goes to every single Open in a season for two years and plays at a pretty good level it has a much better chance at top eighting several of those than if you are forced to miss a bunch because you are doing real life stuff. Yeah, and I do a lot of real life stuff. I I think last season I went to one individual open, maybe two. Yeah. I and think just, one. You just don't have good odds of top eighting if that's what you do. Whew, these team tournaments are tough, man, by yeah. the way. For anyone who doesn't know that, <laughs> it's really hard to day two team tournaments. It's so hard. Yes, that's true. Uh, but, you know, that's what I'm trying for now, because that's what the close ones are. Uh, this season's been pretty rough for tr- me traveling. Yeah. Uh, but I'd like to kind of go to more Opens. You bank some time off at work, that sort of thing, get more travel time, really. Do some of this. Drive up on Friday, fly back on Sunday with me. Yeah, I got to do that. And honestly, I probably will start doing that 
fairly soon, at least when the summer ends. It's certainly the only way I can possibly go to Syracuse, New York for an open. So <laughs> You know, I've somehow been to two Syracuse. I don't <laughs> open. understand. Well, I guess you were you were not working during at least one yeah, of those, Yeah, at least right? one of those. I just wasn't involved. I actually think both of them. Okay. I, well, one of them I was, but I had time. The other, I just was unemployed. Yeah. <laughs> so, Makes it easier. Yeah, way easier. <laughs> Stupid jobs. <laughs> Have all the time, but no money. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's my goal. Just still the same one. Kind of improve. I'd like to improve enough or play enough to right so you just want to give yourself the chance to yeah to translate this into some wins yeah yeah i really want a trophy for my my mantelpiece i would also love a trophy but well we gotta get a trophy yeah yeah we got a bunch of trophies on this mantle none of them i do have one trophy lying around here somewhere but it's not quite as illustrious as the the ones we've got on the mantle so we gotta work on that we'll get some more yeah i full faith that that's the plan put my trophy on the mantle like dylan has his invitational his check, check. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, yeah. dylan does not even live here <laughs> he kind of lives here yeah. yeah yeah why do i lose to bad decks and what to do not to from panama kid so this is the definition of deck choice in modern is this is why it's i feel like it is almost always wrong to play a meta deck in modern and by meta deck i don't mean a deck that's like big in the meta. i mean a sure. deck that is chosen to attack the meta game yeah because even in the most tightly focused modern formats 40 percent of the decks you play against are going to be random <laughs> jank yeah and your deck needs to be doing a thing you got to have a laser in your deck that just will cut through most stuff and this is why i like playing hogak Still a fine choice because the deck does an incredibly powerful thing that beats up on people doing nonsense. You know, this is why we just espouse these linear or at least really assertive decks. And even with Ren and Six, I'm probably never going to play Jund in Modern. (laughs) And Jund does an okay job of beating up on random stuff because Thoughtseize into Threat, into Removal Spell, into another Thoughtseize or whatever actually does beat a lot of things. But there's random stuff that like... You know, Jund can never beat the deck living end. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and we, that's that's like a weird place to be. We literally just watched someone downstairs lose to a white black martyr deck. So <laughs> that, that can just happen. Yeah, yeah, and kind of another one of the factors that makes Jund style decks a little scarier is that that kind of deck really requires you to have a good understanding of what you're playing against, mm-hmm. and that's another thing that you can improve on a little bit is trying to expand your knowledge on just like a wider range of decks in right. in magic. Uh, because sometimes you lose to bad decks because you just didn't know what the deck was up to at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just trying to inform yourself a little more on oh, yeah. and the you're outskirts probably of modern. boarding wrong. Yeah. Do I bring in Leyline against Martyr? I don't know. <laughs> probably, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah. does this actually work? Right. So then, yeah, you definitely a, a big reason that bad decks win is because knowing how to play against a deck especially in modern is you know 10 percentage points on the match like do i know how to beat this deck or not right i think also something i don't like about this question is like kind of the label bad deck i know we all understand it right just a deck that's not played very commonly Mm -hmm. uh maybe have some loose cards but you're not really comparing deck strength when you play a game and just seeing like people do this in limited right They'll have their draft, and they'll be like, oh, this is a 3-0 deck. And they'll play the games. They might play against someone whose deck is bad, air quotes, but then they'll lose anyway because they just 
misevaluated the strategy the other deck was doing mm-hmm. or what have you. So you, uh, how not to lose the bad decks is to just figure out what the other deck is trying to do or what your deck is trying to do and figure out how you can win. Mm-hmm. Like whether that's, if you're playing a reactive deck like Blue-White Control or Jund. What are the threats out of their deck You need matter? to figure out what they're doing that matters. Yep. And if you're playing Hogak, you don't need to really care about them. You just need to make sure you can execute your game plan the way you need to. Yeah. Which of their things interferes with my clock? What maximizes my clock? What minimizes their outs? And then go from there. Yeah, actually, that was uh, that exact same thing happened to me last night. I was kind of, you know, already violating my goal of focusing really hard on the format. And I was doing a draft on Arena because yep. you got to have fun sometimes. Oh, yeah. Drafts are great. I drafted this beautiful blue-black M19 deck that was just like, a super controly deck its win condition was like dumping a bunch of the like looting a bunch dumping those three twos that give you zombies for the number of those in your graveyard oh, dumping yeah. a couple in your graveyards and then you just cast the third fourth and fifth one for a million <laughs> zombies and it had multiple of the one one death touch lifelink guys and uh, multiple soul salvages so pretty <laughs> much like couldn't die to stuff except for the two blue white decks in a row that i played against that just played a bunch of like one and two power flyers and then the griffin that gets pumped when you play and i was oh god i just can't beat creatures with flying bad cards you couldn't interact i had no way of beating the deck because like my deck was great it was like mostly nine out of ten cards (laughs) or like cards that were very good in my deck because i had a powerful cohesive strategy but it just wasn't fast enough to beat here's a metropolis sprite here's another two power flyer here's this griffin you're going to die. Deck strength is kind of a myth. Matchups are what matter. Mm-hmm. Yep. That said, that. like, if you're playing modern, do a thing with a high, like, I can kill you with these cards <laughs> no matter what you do. Yeah, that's a factor. good fail state. Yeah. You, know, you, yeah. Want, you know, That's why I don't like playing blue eye control. You draw your opening hand and you win 40 turns later (laughs) (laughs) well and the quality of the cards in your hand is entirely dependent on the cards in your opponent's hand and that's a i don't know for me at least that makes like mulligan decisions and also just like keeping hands that are obvious keeps like there's two paths in this hand that might be horrible yeah i don't and i don't really want to pick on blue white control it was just the easiest deck to be like uh, I like doing something. You no, know, mm-hmm. I like having a clear game plan. Yeah, or doing a proactive thing. Yep, agree. That's the easiest way to have a low fail state. Because at least you can do your deck's thing, right? It, it, like even in limited, if you just have a bad deck, and I've had lots of bad decks in limited, but I play two drop, then I play three drop, but and they're you're... awful. But I have creatures on the battlefield. I can attack my opponent. Yeah, and now you giant growth, and all of a sudden, yeah, like you, you're you're winning. All right, next up, we've got a question from Dubes. Magic players have been warned about the dangers of results-oriented thinking for a long time. Nonetheless, winning is a major, obvious focus for players. What are ways you avoid this and stay motivated by self-improvement? I mean, I I think we kind of touched on this a little bit with our goals. I think that there's a little bit... You don't want to go too far into being focused on not being results-oriented. Because if you play a season of opens and you don't day two any of them, you have to take a step back and go, I think I may be doing something wrong here. At some point, your results translate into meaning something. But you go to one open and you 0-3 drop and you weren't close in any of the games, that doesn't mean anything at all. Like that That's kind of a sample-sized 
thing. So I definitely want to be careful about just like results at some point do end up mattering. Um, I think the most important thing is don't let results get you down if you're not doing great. And even if you do have a season of never day twoing and open and you went to all of them or something like that. Yeah, that does not feel great. But the way to not have that happen is figure out what's going on rather than be like, shoot, I'm really bad, aren't I? But like, that doesn't help. Everybody, yeah. you know, everybody's be- kind of bad, but <laughs> we can all, the worse you are, the more you have that you can improve. Hundreds of people go to these tournaments and only one person wins every tournament. Yeah. Or so three, I guess, in team tournaments. And, it's, <laughs> and it's Dom Harvey. It's yeah. Dom Harvey. And two other people. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah, I mean, you know, results-oriented thinking, it comes up a lot in Magic, and I kind of interpret it in, like, two separate ways. There's the results-oriented thinking in your tournament results. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you guys were talking about, yeah. where, yeah, I mean, you you don't want to define your identity based on your results in Magic. That's pretty dangerous, but a lot of people do it. <laughs> Even though it's kind of silly when you, like, talk about it like that, it just kind of happens on accident. So that's definitely something that you need to be aware of and a lot of people i think this is one of the most toxic parts of and i don't know how strong it is in other you know in for example like the pro tour regular is part of the magic community but it's definitely one of the more toxic parts of the scg tour community and it's, it's really, practiced by a, really bad in the scg tour community yeah a lot of people that i like a lot and respect a lot also just have this part of them that is so hyper focused on who's good and who's bad and mm-hmm. who's winning, who's doing good stuff at like, and it's to an extent that I think is really hurting people and their relationships. And I, I think it's like kind of psychologically damaging. Too. It's yeah. I mean, it's, it's really bad. And that specifically is something I could talk about a lot. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Like the number of times that I've seen somebody, judge a human being based on like a mistake that they made in a match of magic Mm -hmm. and then like every time i like talk to that person about their opinions about this other person they always bring up that like one mistake that they made like in this match and that that happens way too often for being a ridiculous thing to do yeah uh (laughs) you know so that's like a broader issue kind of yeah I think a lot of that how much comes. I want to spend on that. Yeah, you're probably right. I have all these theories about it and stuff, and why it happens. For and, sure, but yeah, and part of the problem is that a lot of the the grinders, there's kind of been created this like, I don't want to like this inner circle of like people who are always there at the tournaments and are doing well. And people you see all the time. Yeah, the people you see all the time. And the reality is that the people that you see all the time are the people who are having success on the tour so you only really get to join this inner group of circle of people once you start having results in magic the gathering mm-hmm. or you can cheat and start a podcast with someone <laughs> who is having these results there you go perfect yeah but right so that whole like system of like that's how you get into this like group of grinders who like know each other and talk to each other at events you get there by like getting results and you know, a byproduct of that is that, you know, if you live, if that's the world that you live in, mm-hmm. then yeah, you're going to judge people based on their results in the Magic the Gathering, which yep. is 
you know, fundamentally pretty bad, but... And you also are just incentivized by, you know, the SCG toy itself to be results-oriented. You're trying to get, you know, to the Players' Championship yeah, and all yeah, of yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Kind of see the people you see all the time are also trying to get to the Players' Champion. You have to, like, kind of reassure yourself that you're not going to lose to these people. Yeah. Yeah. I know this is something that Dom has talked about as well, and I think it's particularly, you know, Dom appeared... And started just winning. Yep. And so he immediately got kind of invited into the inner circle. Yeah. If he if things had broken not quite his way in a couple of matches and he just kind of missed those top eights instead of like winning, you know, finalizing and then winning tournaments, he is he would not be a person that I would want to hang out with any less. Like Dom is awesome and he would still be this awesome, fun person who is excellent at magic. Yeah. But I wouldn't know who he is because he didn't spike those tournaments right and i mean that's just like a natural extension i'm like glad he did because then i got to meet him and hang out with him but yeah it's it's such a weird thing i i don't really know like what the solution there is because it's it's kind of the system that is like fundamentally flawed or whatever but yeah um, i think it's just something you kind of grow out of honestly Mm -hmm. you just realize that eventually it doesn't matter as much as you used to think it did yeah, for sure. And that's... I, I used to be like that. I used to... You think I was great. Absolutely <laughs> great. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone yeah. else was awful. And, yeah. And it happens not only on, like, the big SG tour, but, like, locally, like, at, like, local shops. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, the same kind of thing of, like, oh, the people who are successful at the local level are also going to, like, create a, you know, a friend group mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I don't know. And... Also, like, and I've mentioned this briefly before, but not only are you not your results, but you are also not how good you are at Magic. Yes. You know? Oh, right, yeah. Like, you, you come to Opens, you get beat up, you don't have a lot of time to put in the game, or you just don't, you're, it's not quite clicking, but you like playing Magic, and, like, you still have a lot of, you still have exactly as much value as anybody who's crushing the tour. Like, you're supposed to be there. I would like to hang out with you. There are plenty of cool people who play magic or don't play magic or whatever and are terrible at magic. So please don't get too tied up with this whole like X is bad at magic thing. It just it's not an indication of you as a human being. I think, yeah. yeah, the best thing that I, for me, at least I think a lot of people other too, just stay humble. A lot of people gravitate towards other people with similar skill levels as themselves. So if you're in the higher bracket, Try not to look down on the other people. They're still learning. Everyone's still learning. Yeah. yeah. What was the second thing about the results-oriented thinking? <laughs> oh, um... Well, now that we've drifted so far, <laughs> yeah. I just really wanted to get us back in. This, so there's the results-oriented thinking in terms of, like, success versus not success. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's, you know... Um, and that's, like, a like a mental thing. Mm-hmm. But then there's also results-oriented thinking in terms of, um, like, in a game of Magic, when we're trying to learn, we don't want to... Just because something worked doesn't mean it was the right Right. play. Yeah, we don't want to base our, like, ideas of the correct play on whether or not, you know, this one would have gotten there or not by, like, looking at the top card of your library or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know which... I I, I assume that Dubs was asking more about the first stuff we were talking about. Mm -hmm. But um, when I hear results-oriented thinking, I always think about, like, just the very common, you know, you point out somebody's mistake and then they respond with... Oh, but that wouldn't have mattered or whatever. Right. You know, that's like, that's another like results oriented thinking that is probably more likely a 
defense mechanism more than anything else where they like aren't willing to take responsibility for a mistake so they find some other escape route to make it okay in their mind so they say oh it was fine you know <laughs> but you know it's it's definitely still really important to take ownership over the mistakes that you make and try to learn from that and you know stay humble <laughs> yeah exactly uh, you know you it's it's making mistakes is fine it's you know you're gonna be okay and in an ideal world nobody would judge you for making those mistakes people mm. do and that sucks and i think that is that culture is what creates that defense mechanism happening so often yeah that, you don't want your group of friends to have spotted those mistakes and then you become the guy who has made this stupid mistake right yeah. unforced error right un well but oh, no because yeah. it's not that's oh, not how it's right, being treated right. in this context yeah and and you know that is a, a problem is that who's really at fault here is it the person who you know defaults to the escape route of saying oh that wouldn't have mattered anyways or is it like the culture of shaming yeah shaming people who make mistakes i think you know both are bad but if we want to prevent one thing from happening which is the you know defensive thing that everybody gets mm -hmm. it's more likely that a better solution to that is to try to eliminate the yeah that shaming culture yeah. um and that that can show up a lot of ways one thing that we've talked a lot about in in team lotus box is how we go about pointing out somebody's mistake because something that has happened a lot in the past is we say wow that was a terrible play <laughs> and that just makes people feel bad you know so if you can replace that vocabulary with something more along the lines of like, hey, did you consider doing this other thing here? Because I think that would be a better play. Keep it positive. Mm -hmm. It makes a huge difference in somebody's reception of your criticism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We probably don't have time to do all of these now. Do we Coward? just want to pick no. <laughs> <laughs> one or two more good ones? Yeah. If, if you have like ones that look particularly... Ooh, I, I do want to talk about the live reads question. <laughs> Oh, yes. I, as, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. there we go. Yeah. Also, as uh, TI Hunter 7 points out, you can also have value by becoming a patron of the MTG Grandcast. True, so. yeah. <laughs> Automatic value. Yeah. That's Doob's shilling us. <laughs> Not even me. I don't get paid for this. <laughs> nice. Sorry, go ahead with your question. Oh, uh, should I just read out the question? Yeah, yeah. It? Okay. So uh, Nathaniel asks, how highly do you value live reads of your opponents based on body language, facial expression, or tone of voice? And how often do you make plays based on them? All of the time. It's really important. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the answer. You, so this is something that gives more experienced players and players who have the ability to read opponents a pretty big edge, I think, in paper. Um, and you can turn your, like, 70% win rate into like an 80% win rate if you you know like I feel like my win rate on online is much worse than my win rate in paper for pretty much this reason is that I think that one of my skills is being able to read people and uh, I don't get to do that online but in paper I I have much better understanding of like what they have in their hand and mm -hmm. stuff like that I think that it's a really important element of the paper game and uh, I definitely recommend you experiment experiment a little bit with uh trying to make plays based on you know your reads mm -hmm. and a lot of being able to read people comes from skills that you need just generally within the game which is like an understanding of what your opponents could have in particular scenarios and like playing around that and then the read kind of comes in and like adds a little extra on top of that skill that you already have of like 
like, oh, I'm worried about my opponent having a counterspell here. And then maybe I can, you know, use my reads to inform whether or not I'm going to choose to play around that counterspell or not or mm -hmm. whatever. And once you have played a lot of Paper Magic, I think sometimes you can't quite articulate your reads, but I think that a lot of them are a little bit instinctual and what is just you intuit things that you might not be able to like i don't know why but i know my opponent has a bolt yeah so i'm mm -hmm. not gonna run out this dreadhorde arcanist yeah. and i would recommend players to trust their intuition way more than they do already yes i a lot of my reads are based on that kind of like gut feeling intuition stuff and i've found that i'm correct a lot of the time and i don't know why mm-hmm but, you know, you pick up on things subconsciously that you don't really ever process consciously, especially when you're, like, actively consciously processing a game of Magic the Gathering. Yeah. You're, There's you're, a lot going on. You know, you are actually taking in a lot of other information. Well, a huge part of our brain is devoted to understanding conversations, understanding fa facial expressions, and interpreting body language yeah, you physical reaction physical reaction and most of this stuff is done completely unconsciously you're not aware of it but you know when somebody is nervous you know when somebody is angry you know when somebody is frustrated without like identifying like oh i saw the way that their nostrils moved i heard the shift in their tone of voice you don't yeah. you can't say these things and right. that also applies to <laughs> the, any shift that indicates like they got the days like yeah i'm actually kind of surprised you said it was important because I, I also think it's important. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I'm very good at it. Sure. Like, I, I cannot even begin to tell you why or how I would be able to tell what my opponents have something or not. Yeah. But I know that when I play in paper, a lot of the time I will be able to just tell what cards they have. Yeah. Based on, mostly it's how long they take in making their plays. Yeah. <laughs> like, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> when someone makes a pause that I'm not expecting at a specific time. Like, not their main phase. Uh, I'll be like, oh, maybe they have something here. What could they have? Maybe this. Yes, that would make sense. Kind of that. that tra that's my train of thought. Sure. Uh, and that's how I get most of my reads. But I'm not looking for, like, posture or anything like that. Because I don't, I, I don't know how to interpret I don't think you should look for it. But oh, no, no, you no. should trust yourself yeah. when when stuff occurs to you. Also, this is this is too far for most people to put any actual energy into. And so I very rarely do unless I'm really playing a matchup that I like could play in my sleep because like I know exactly what's important. I've played it a million times. Uh, but the key to making your opponent make the wrong plays is to make them think you have what you don't have and think you don't have what you do have. Yes. Like this is the, the Sun Tzu like appear strong when you are weak and appear weak when you are strong. You never want them to think you have days when you do have days and you always want them to walk into days when you, you... Anyway, when you don't have days, you want them to think you do have it. When you have days, you want them to think you don't. If you can... Whatever... Like, if you don't have the days and you want to put just a little bit of... And you want to be real careful about it, but when they cast their spell and you want to... You know, you don't want to say, wait, hold on. Okay, that's fine. Like, that's too much. But if you can put a little bit of pepper on your okay, if you can, like, give it a little bit of a pause first, then obviously then you draw the days immediately. But, <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
Putting a little pepper on things is my favorite. Uh, yeah, I like it too. Um, yeah, sometimes you got to put a little pepper on things. And you you definitely have to figure out, you know, sometimes you're playing against another experienced player and you got to figure out what level they're going to be oh, on, yeah, yeah. right? Because if you go to like a casino and you play poker against other people at a casino, they're going to be utilizing that Sun Tzu philosophy every time. Mm-hmm they're always going to be weak when they are representing that they're strong and they're always going to be strong when they're representing that they're weak. So, you know, you you have to find that kind of like balance and and figure out, you know, who's doing what sometimes. It's, and it's a lot to I, it for sure. Default to stone face when you are not sure exactly. Oh, yeah. I, I will say I really, really enjoy playing physical like magic. Not not paper magic, but physical magic where you're like reacting and stuff and your opponent is reacting and you're both playing a game where... You're trying to figure like more out animated, magic. yeah, yeah, more okay. animated magic, yeah, yeah. Where you're, you're trying to like both signal to each other different things. Sure. You have to figure out what's real and what isn't real. Yeah, uh, that's usually like a much higher level thing, but it, I, I really enjoy it. I think it's super fun. And this is not trying to take advantage of somebody. Those types of matches are usually like the friendliest matches yes. that that we've, we've ever played. Because you have to interact. Yeah, yeah. And, and you usually both leave those match like that was really fun. I hope we yeah. play again sometime. Yeah, I had a great... So I played one of my matches um, in one of the IQs last weekend. I played against an Elves player. And I, like, pretty aggressively bluffed a Boros Charm in this, like, weird scenario where they were at four life and they had a Burton Forge Tender out. Mm -hmm. Mm. They had an Azuri that was going to kill me. But I, like, you know, tapped two mana, untapped two mana, (laughs) and then looked at their life total... And then bolted their Azuri, and they looked at me, and you know, and then they were like, "Okay, that resolves." Azuri, <laughs> and I bought myself like three or four turns with my Boros Charm bluff because they then from that point on played the rest of the game as if you had Boros Charm. Yeah, with with the board, Forge Tender assigned to assigned your to my Boros right. Charm, which is just a mountain in my hand. But but yeah, stuff like that is a lot of fun, and I think adds a very interesting element to paper magic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah, definitely. There are times when you identify like, and, and this is a key to bluffing that we've mentioned before, but probably a long time ago. If you're bluffing something, bluff something specific and make plays as though you have yes. that for the whole time. Right. Uh, yeah. And sometimes you really need to sell it. That, that two lands looking at the life total, like, you know, that's that's going very specifically. Like, I want to put this well, card in my opponent's head. Yeah. And this is how I do it. Right, right. And I, you know, I think I did that specific thing like pretty well so i was like pretty proud of that match even <laughs> yeah. though i got slaughtered but it's fine. yeah <laughs> it doesn't take much honestly. don't be results oriented i've yeah. i've done the counterful thing where you tap land untap it and you're like mm, play something else you know right think for a second before tapping mana it's just you, there's a lot of different things you can do that isn't telegraphing i have this specific thing that's makes your yeah. opponent pause right. right one thing that i need to do more of is if i'm you know, my hand is pretty weak and I have like one play each turn because I'm a little flooded or whatever like that. I need to do a better job of not just like putting my card on the table and passing the turn. Like I need to appear a little bit stronger in that position just by taking a little more time to make my decision. Like I'm not, I do a good job usually of not letting it affect my like face or mannerisms or anything. Mm -hmm. I play my card, I pass the turn, I don't huff and sigh or anything like that. But I make it, I make the play too quickly and if you're paying attention, you probably go, oh, you really didn't have a decision that turn. And that's giving up information. That's why I just make my decisions as quick as possible every time. <laughs> yeah, so there's <laughs> never any indication. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, and then we should probably wrap up with the most important question. What is your strat to gain Modern Magic's most valuable resource? Clout. And that is from Ooh. Alex Riley. Well, we started a podcast, Chris, and it's worked out decently. That's my main strat. <laughs> oh, and actually, uh, that I, I forgot to add that to, like, what are your goals in Magic right now? Sure. Honestly, this is my focus. You know, this is what I put a lot of my energy into. A lot of my time that I could have, in a different world, just been spent testing is spent working on this stuff. Yeah. Um, but I've gotten way more out of doing this. Yeah. Both just because, like, making the podcast is cool and I like having this be my thing. But also, like, I think I've gotten better at magic just by, like, talking about it so much. And, you know, going back to the clout question, like, I get to meet and hang out and talk to a lot of people who I probably wouldn't, like, get their attention just by, like, going to opens and getting beat up in opens. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. And so I have access to a lot of information and just knowledge and chats that I wouldn't necessarily have had access to otherwise. So like the, the podcast is my primary magic goal and focus. And nice. as far as clout goes, <laughs> your primary clout grabber, it is probably the best way for me to grab clout is to just keep doing this as, as long as I can. Yeah. We all have a little bit of clout grabber. In us, <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> of course. You didn't write that KCI Bible for nothing. <laughs> yeah, it was specifically for clout and no other reason. Yeah, yeah. Anyone who tells you anything else is lying. Well, the only other possible reason could have been to get KCI banned a little quicker. <laughs> I kind of really did want it out of the format. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was winning a lot, but that deck was just not fun to win with when someone just didn't know what was happening. Because yeah. it's just explaining nonsense to yeah, them. it's not I'm going to do this and then this. Judge, can he do that? I'm not sure. Let me check. The, the, <laughs> yeah. the magic played to game action ratio of that deck is just, like, atrocious. It's It's... Feels so bad when your opponent has never seen it before, and you just have to explain why they're dead. Mm -hmm. And they're like, "That is not how magic works." Yep. And you say, "Actually, it's extremely how magic works." <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It's not yeah. how the game of magic works. It's how the rules of magic work. Yeah. Uh, Cloud grabbing is eh, whatever. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's pretty nonsense. I I appreciate getting Twitter followers because. Every Twitter follower is obviously somebody who listens to the podcast, and it's really cool that people listen to the podcast. And that's the main reason that it's nice. That's yeah. honestly the only thing I really care about. Yeah, I like when people... I, I will say like a good thing about clout, because clout isn't all yeah. posturing, you know? Uh, you just get to build like kind of this network. Um, I'm thinking Twitter specifically, because mm -hmm. that's like kind of the only social platform I even try to bother with. Uh, but you just... Like I post, and I'm not a big cloud grapher. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> no, absolutely. I like I like post my deck list or whatever for a weekend. I do some pictures, and people are like, "Oh wow, this is interesting. What do you think about X, Y, and Z?" And then maybe we get to discuss about it from this random person on the internet. I'm never gonna meet, or maybe who knows. But that's just cool. Mm -hmm. Get to talk about magic a little bit more uh, in ways I wouldn't expect. Well, and you like you chatted with BBD and worked with him a little bit on the. There was a deck that he played at the Mythic Championship, right? And that's because you put yourself out there and, you know? Yeah. Like, that's neat. It is neat. That's I did enjoy that. I, there's this whole kind of, like, workshop, really, where I get to talk with people about stuff I like, and it's great. Yeah. One of the places 
if you wanted to, that you could do that. <laughs> would be the MTG Grindcast Discord, which you can join by becoming a patron of the podcast. I'm only leading into this because I think it is getting to be about that time to wrap up the show. Yeah. Oh, I just love the segue. Yeah. <laughs> it was perfect. Listen, time. when you Chris has got some, great we are segues. well over two years at this point, so we got the segue thing down pat. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to come hang out in the Discord for such discussions as how do I gain more clout in the magic community? <laughs> All the important topics. How do I spend my clout dollars? <laughs> All the hot yeah. gossip on the SCG tour. <laughs> <laughs> help! Help! My clout is infected. I don't know what to do. Like we got a whole, we got channels for all of these things. <laughs> but mostly we talk about magic. So yeah. if you want to come hang out in the Discord, if you want to get some pins and just got a sketch of the playmat, so the playmat is definitely happening. I can't wait. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of feedback, and then hopefully we get that taken care of pretty quickly. Uh, so plenty of stuff like that coming on. If you want to join the Patreon, head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast, or you can go straight to our website, mtggrindcast.com. We've got links to the Patreon there. We've got links to all of our episodes uh, information about us and as well as links to Collins's coaching services if you're interested in that. If you want to find us on social media, you can find the podcast at, at MTG underscore grindcast. I am tweeting from at CCR underscore grindcast. Collins is also on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. Lee, you are also on Twitter. Yeah, at Lee McLeo. I think that's really it for us today. So our cloud grabbing is done for today. Yeah, I, I, my, I've got two fistfuls, and I just can't carry anymore. <laughs> gotta go to the clout bank and make a deposit. <laughs> <Get> deposit. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right. Well, thanks to everybody for listening to all of our nonsense. Um, honestly, it it really really means a lot that just that that people would tune in. Definitely appreciate our patrons. That is super cool. But listening, telling your friends retweeting our our honestly retweeting our the episode is up tweet is is on point that is nice. like one of the cooler things you can possibly do so if you do that you will have my undying love and everybody who's doing that stuff cannot appreciate you more you know what's cool too is i i'm not on this podcast mm-hmm. I, i'm on this specific episode you are on this podcast. but i am not i'm not a part of the podcast right but occasionally I'll get messages that are like, hey, Lee, when the next time you're going to be on the Grindcast podcast? I'm like, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah. yeah. Nice. And hopefully as we get some like Grindcast swag out into the wild, people will be able to just sort of recognize each other and like do the like bro nod as you go. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know oh, what yeah. this, this person's yeah. all about. I've gotten a lot of compliments on my pins so far. It's, <laughs> been, it's been nice. Yeah. Excellent. Again, thanks everybody so much for listening. Really appreciate it. And... Have a great week. Peace. Bye.